Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Griggs, and I'm the host of the Regenesance podcast, where I want to talk to folks in the regenerative agriculture space to help explain how we've gotten here and what we can do moving forward in the food system as a whole. And alongside me is Ron Miskin with the Buffalo Wool Company. And this is something that I've been personally looking forward to because I've been really enthralled with bison the last year. That's why if you look at the shirt behind me, that's the main logo of my personal brand. And so thank you, Ron, for joining me. Oh, thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. And, you know, I love talking about bison. Awesome. Well, I guess just to get started. So just from your website, mentioning that you've been in this business for 30 or 40 years. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious to get a little rundown of what exactly the Buffalo Wool Company is and the and how it originated. Well, briefly, it originated through my father. Um, we're, I'm, I don't come from a long line of ranching people. We, we moved to Texas in the early 80s. And when you move to Texas, it's sort of required that first thing you do is buy a ranch. We bought some property down south of Fort Worth, Texas. And my father learned that they have these animal auctions every weekend where you can go and buy stuff. We went through a lot of different things from pot-bellied pigs to miniature horses. We've had pheasants and quail and chickens and it's been a journey, but um, at one point, the Fort Worth Nature Center had a uh, an auction selling off a little bit of their herd, trying to, to keep their herd size more manageable. And my father bought a pair of bison. That was, again, 40-something years ago. And the minute you're around them, you're just awestruck at their majesty. And you understand that they are an apex species here. In, they are just part of the land. And they are, they are so natural and they fit so well. And I don't care if you're in Minnesota or New Mexico, they work and they do better for the planet. So, so I guess my next question with that being said, um, I know you mentioned that he started with a couple of bison, but I guess can you just get a little detail of why they're so amazing for our environment? Because when we think of ranching, we think of, uh, when I say we, a lot of the general population just think of cattle, especially with Texas or sheep and lamb and goats and chickens. And I know bison in the 1800s, there were millions around, but now it's much, much less. So yeah, I'm just curious why bison. Um, well, the reason why bison get becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly. You look and see what is native to our land, what kind of shaped our environment. And bison is the apex species in, in this country. and because if you start with the top, it's amazing. If you fix the, the big issues, it's amazing how it just trickles down and all of a sudden everything else sort of falls into place. There's reasons why other things are, are more commonly ranched. I mean, certain things grow faster and will just sit there and eat. Um, certain things are more manageable. Certain things can be stocked in a larger density, can get to market faster. Placent aren't easy. But with proper management and at least a little understanding of just letting them be bison, it is easy and it does make sense. And more and more ranchers are converting herds. And I've seen, seen since we got into the industry, seen a massive resurgence in people understanding and figuring out how to provide the land, provide the, the resources that the animals need and make, their, make it simple, smart and healthy. How much land would, if someone is wanting to be thinking about starting a ranch for bison, 
how much land would you need for that? That's a really good question. Um, any stocking rates, you can usually go to your county extension agent and find out what your stocking rate, the number of animal units per acre is in your area. You know, obviously better grass, more grass year round, the more animals you can have. Around here, say one animal per acre, um, which would essentially translate into one bison. It's pretty much equivalent to, to a cow. Personally, I, I think that take the, the official stocking rate and double it, so or double the land required. So I wouldn't have more than one animal for two acres around here. And it's preferable and less stress on the land if you can reduce that density even, even more so. And then I guess the I'm really curious too because they're completely wild animals. I remember the first time I saw them actually at the National Bison Association conference this past January. Uh, I agree, they're completely majestic beasts. Very, um, it makes you just stop in your tracks. <laughs> and I can only imagine what it's like trying to take care of them. So I guess that would be my next question. How are you able to manage them with just say you and one other person? Um, just trying to detail that out, what that would look like whenever you're starting the ranch. Say you have a couple acres and you get two bison, because I know bison, whenever they're only by themselves, can cause a lot of problems. So you'd want more than one. Is that correct? Uh, very true. I mean, and when we talk about raising bison, you talk about the, the couple of things that are required. Water. Okay. That's pretty obvious. Fencing, because they are big and they do like to roam. Solid fencing and company. Um, they, they are a herd animal, and if they are not kept in a family unit, they'll go find one, which means that whatever fencing you put up doesn't mean anything because they're stronger than almost all of them. So keeping them happy is huge. And one of the things that they talk about with bison is that you can follow them anywhere. It's not like handling bison, I don't, I feel like is not like cattle where you can push them, corral them, move them. With bison, make them want to do it, <laughs> give them incentives, you know, lead them with, lead them with feed, things like that. That works really well. But it, Again, they, these are undomesticated animals. They're not meant to be held in a pan, held in a chute and things like that. So there is a little bit more to working them. And I'm going to be just straight up. I don't have bison here on my place because I don't quite have the, the land for it. Um, so we, I have five acres. So I have a few, few cows and chickens and turkeys and pigs and bees and stuff like that. If I could have 50, 100 acres, we would, we'd be having a little bit different story. So I don't want to mm -hmm. give specifics because that's really not what I'm comfortable doing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. The National then, Association, oh, oh. No, you can go ahead. The National Bison Association has a wonderful mentorship program. Basically, if you're interested in raising bison, the first thing to do is I'll put you in touch with somebody in your area who does raise bison and, and has a little bit more of the specifics. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times we've gone out and helped other ranchers work. And one of the things in our local association, the Texas Bison Association here, is if we do know that we're going to have a work day or something where we're going to have to run them through the chutes or load or what have you, you put out a phone call and it's amazing. People show up. They want to help. And that just makes it safer for everybody involved. Hmm. So I guess for your, for the Buffalo Wool Company, for example, um, 
Yeah, I guess what's the process like for all of that? So do you just source from a different bison ranch? Um, well, we work with most of the bison ranchers in the U.S. What we do, our primary product is the bison fiber, the hair. And it's when, when you start looking at all the parts of the animal that don't have a commercial value, that's kind of how we discovered the fiber and, and looking at the historical uses and, and the actual just physical properties of the fiber, we realized the value to it. But trying to make things commercially out of any sort of animal fiber requires a fair amount of volume. The bison industry is extremely collaborative. Everybody is very happy to work together. We realize that it is not competitive and that we're never going to replace cattle with bison as much as we would love to. So people are very willing to work together. And there's a lot of a lot of that that goes on in the industry. So because we are willing to put some commercial value to the hair, whether it's through the hides or shearing them at the plants, things like that, um, everybody's been really supportive and wonderful. And we get money back upstream, helps make the animals more valuable to the ranchers. And all of a sudden, you know, the more commercial value, the more likely they are that somebody's getting get it get into the ranching industry. That was one thing I noticed whenever I was at the conference was how collaborative everyone was and very welcoming uh, environment. So I guess I'm curious then with that whole process, what are some of the key bottlenecks within whether it be just ranching or <laughs> ranching the actual bison or if there's any regulations? Because I don't know a whole lot of behind the scenes with bison. So yeah, I was just curious about that. Um. There are, truthfully, the biggest bottleneck really is experience. Um, you know, you go back 70 years and there were four people with bison ranching experience. So because of these associations, the, both the National Buffalo Foundation and the National Bison Association, there's been a lot more people that are willing to share experience, help mentor and teach and show that it, that it can be successful on a commercial basis. So. I guess in answer to your question, yeah, it's uh, we're still growing, but trying to get these animals to market is is an, it does have its other challenges. They're not regulated the same way that cattle are. They are still classified by Fish and Wildlife as a wildlife species, and there is not the same sort of uh, labeling and inspection process by USDA that there is for beef. So the National Buffalo Foundation has done and the Bison Association have both done an amazing job working together to try and make it a little bit more make sense in, in terms of a commercial basis, in terms of putting meat on shelves, in terms of having the same labeling requirements and, and making people understand that that, you, that these aren't wild ant herds, that these are commercially raised and that they are, you know, not endangered anymore. Even though the bison were never on the endangered species list, when we started doing this and, and showing that you can really eat them to save them, there was a lot of people that are like, well, aren't they endangered? Aren't there only a few? And it's like, well, you know, this is, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And in the, you know, years that we've been in the industry, I've seen, we've watched the national herd size go from, you know, under a hundred thousand animals to pushing up closer to a half a million now. And we've got goals of a million animals. That's uh, the greatest comeback in history. I agree. And I guess with that then too, because I know you're talking about 
the National Bison Association with the mentorship piece. Are there any other ways that you, you could see helping trying to push that goal of achieving the 1 million bison? Um, well, it's, it's really getting more ranchers on board uh, is one of the, the bigger aspects of it because what it comes down to, every rancher anywhere is essentially a grass farmer. Okay, so that's where it all starts. And, and if, as long as you're growing grass and putting animals on it, they eat the grass and you know that's how that's how it goes so converting more of this our prairie grasslands and things like that to bison will will increase the increase the species there is sort of you know bottleneck with birth rate and you know animals only have one calf a year so you're you're limited in that regard you have to have some stewardship in terms of how much are you going to process and how much are you going to put into the market you know how much is growth phase and how much is profitability and that's been something that that's been a very well analyzed and, and i think pretty well stewarded question over, over the years the growth has has been significant but it can't go exponentially you can't just order more bison yeah so i'm curious then um with the cost the startup cost of uh, a cattle versus a bison ranch but then also i guess if you were to go to auctions, are what are the costs like when trying to buy a bison versus just a, a cow? Again, a question without a simple answer. Yeah, I've watched the market just bounce all over the place. I mean, mm. when we were starting out, they were under 50 cents a pound. Um, and I've seen there's been spikes and dips in the market just based on supply and demand. And it, that's, how it, that's how it all goes. In terms of being comparable to cattle, Bison are typically more expensive. Currently, the market price of beef on the rail is getting much closer to the price of bison than I've ever seen. So, you know, bison is definitely a premium product as far as meat goes, but beef is getting stupidly expensive. So six of one, half dozen of the other. I do think that in the long run, the animals are, are much more profitable from a ranching standpoint. It does take slightly more investment in terms of infrastructure. You really need better than average cattle fencing, you know, to, to raise bison. I think that's a safe and responsible way to do it. Um, and overall, I think it's just, it, it's really getting to know what you're willing to do and what you kind of product you'd like to produce as a rancher. If you want to put out the best quality product you can, you go one direction. If you just want to throw meat, you know, Put animals in a box and throw meat in the, in the freezer. It's a different direction. I'm curious. Then you were saying long term, it, it has the potential to be more profit profitability, higher profitability. I guess can you elaborate on that? Well, again, it, it is a it's a superior product. I mean, if you've had a bison burger, if you've had a beef burger, and if you do those on a, on a continuous basis, you just you really start to understand that the bison is a better for you and be better for the planet terms of the long term not having to, to with farming one of the things that, that does add a lot of expenses is putting inputs back into the land whether it's fertilizer whatever with bison they do a much better job of, of maintaining your grasslands and not not depleting the soil as much as you know dense cattle operations do so if you're looking for something that's going to have a long-term benefit to your property bison are a pretty obvious choice 
And with whenever, I guess, observing bison, because their grazing patterns are, they cover much more land than, than cattle, especially if you think about the Great Plains areas. They're running from the furthest north point all the way down to Texas. Whenever trying to manage your own, um, your own land with bison, and I guess when thinking about fencing and all of that, how do you strategize around that? Because they are wild and they could easily mess up your fence, I guess. And yeah, I guess if you could just well, shed light I, on all of that. Because I know, I guess, for example, I was supposed to be on a bison ranch, but I had some health issues. And I know a lot of what I was going to be doing was just going around making sure all the fencing was up correctly. Um, as, as far as grazing operations, the best scenario is mimicking the natural roaming patterns is giving them letting them intensely graze one one piece of land move to the next let the the, the first piece of ground rest and recuperate and and just keeping them moving so like on our ranch we had 40 something acres but we had it split into five five different things so they could move from one section to the other and you kind of let them move freely but you do sort of not sort of you you do manage it you do have to actually keep them moving so that they do have access to fresh green stuff. And then you also let have to give the land some recovery time. And those native grazing patterns, when it did swoop down through the country and back up, mimic that as closely as you can on your own property. And that will, that will improve your land. How long for, so for example, for those 40 acres with the five different paddocks, how long would you allow the bison for one paddock before wanting them to, to move on? It depends on the growth rate during that time of year. So when you've got May and June and grass is growing, you know, at a quarter of an inch a day, they can stay in one area longer. When you get towards later period of the year where the grass is recovering slower, you kind of have to move them a little slower and use a little bit more pieces. So it's not just a set a clock and move the bison at 12 o'clock type of situation or move them every three days. You have to look at the land and, and understand what's what's actually happening. In the instance where, I guess, overgrazing happens and the bison, I don't, just some mistake was made to where the bison stayed in the pack too long and definitely overgrazed. How do you manage that uh, for the future? Or, yeah, I guess, how do you fix that, per se? <laughs> Again, part of the reason that, that people raise these animals is because they they do help regenerate the soil better. So. Keeping them in too long, they're not going to eat the grass to the ground. They're not going to pull the roots like other animals. So they, they really, I don't want to say they won't overgraze because if they're hungry, they're going to eat what they want. But, you know, they're also going to put more deposits back into the land, which should help the grass grow back faster. So I, I again, you're asking great questions that I really... If I was more of a direct rancher myself, I would probably have some better answers. But um, I'm kind of getting into broad strokes type, type answer on these. But that, that's a good question. And I think maybe that what we can look for in the future is let me bring a couple of rancher friends and have a little, maybe do a panel with you for people from yes, different sir. regions and things like that. Because I think that maybe better ranching answers than I can give you. I mean, I can speak specifically towards north central Texas and a smaller piece of property, but I've got friends that have, you know, 300,000 acres in North Dakota. 
very different strategy on that. Uh, one of the things that we we put together a the Bison Handbook, we call it Producers 101, that has a lot of, of really good answers that if you are specifically thinking about converting your ranch to or starting to raise bison, that would be the first place I would start is the handbook. And second, again, talking to ranchers in your local area. So is that handbook on your the Buffalo Wool Company website or is that somewhere else? If you go to bisoncentral.org, or bisoncentral.com, actually. That's the National Bison Association's website. The book's available on Amazon. I think we have, I'm pretty sure we have it on our website also. Um, I want it in anybody's hands who is interested. Awesome. Well, thank you. I guess to transition a little bit and just talking about the history of bison, because in the 1800s, millions roamed everywhere. You could hear herds running from a mile away, which trying to visualize that is just crazy <laughs> to where. <laughs> um yeah i guess i'm just curious to hear your perspective on just the history of of bison and why they were just so beneficial and so crucial to to where we had the most fertile land farmland in the world thanks to them i, I don't know if you could go into more detail of just the history of them um and yeah just how they interacted with our with our natural landscape and improved it so much Okay, well, again, they are what formed our landscape. I mean, this planet was really shaped by the bison, the herds of bison roaming across it. So everything that we had, whether it was the native prairie grasses, the birds, all of that was dependent on the, the apex species. They, they were the top. With our grasslands, that anytime that you have, you were growing all of this, this grass, the cellulose, and the only time it actually can be be regenerated and put back into the soil as nutrient, it pretty much has to be done in a warm, moist environment. The only place that is in a lot of places is in the ruminant of a large ungulate, such as a bison. So that's just part of the cycle. I mean, grass grows, they eat it, poop, and it, it goes back into the soil. That's, that's basically how our, our world has evolved. We, when we, killed off of all of the bison towards the end of the end of the last century or the century before we, we lost a lot of that hence we had things like the dust bowl and watched all of our soil depleted and that's when we started having to add all of these artificial inputs and fertilizers back into the soil in order to actually grow anything so as we heal our land and bring these animals back you start to see you know the biodiversity coming back and it's amazing how every little bird, bug, and critter plays some part in keeping the land alive. And again, that's the reason why we started with the bison. It's the top. You fix those big problems, and it's amazing what happens on smaller problems. We're doing that, my wife and myself, here on our little piece of land, to some degree, trying to, to not use chemical fertilizers, not use pesticides and herbicides in, in and see really what actually happens. And it's been an experiment for myself, but it also provides our family sustenance. And it's been a really amazing adventure watching that happen. So, so, you're, so at the start, you were uh, using those chemical inputs and then slowly weaning off, or I guess, could you talk about that process? No, we really didn't. We, we bought this land uh, just prior to COVID. 
we had a little house in the suburbs. We spent the prior 10 years on the road out there talking about bison, hawking socks and showing off our products and visiting ranchers and things like that. It wasn't until we got here that we decided that what we're going to do with this piece of land is run it naturally. So it's not that I was a farmer before. I wasn't. It wasn't that we did any of, of the other stuff before. But we do watch a lot of people around here who spray graze on on hay, who use, you know, the glyphosate and things like that in their soils. And truthfully, our place looks pretty. We have, we've got the birds, the bees, the bugs, and everything out there growing. And it's, it's made a, a huge change, I think, to this property. That's awesome. I guess to transition a little bit to, um, I guess just the, after the actual ranching and the bison, and you've got, I guess how to formulate this question. I guess, can you explain your process then? You've got the bison and then how does that look to, to turn into the, to the wool socks and hats and all of the awesome products that you have? Okay, well, let, let's back up just a little bit. Looking at this fiber, and when we started with this, this was originally started as sort of a challenge from the National Bison Association to see if somebody could find a way to help raise the value of the animal. You raise the value of the animal, you make it more attractive to and commercially viable to raise more people will want to raise them. So it was my father who looked around and had been picking up shed bison fiber around our ranch because they grow this undercoat. It's our primary product. They grow it out in the winter and then shed it out in the spring. And we'd pick it up off the fence and blackberry bushes. We'd watch birds using it to line their nests. But dad would pick it up and it's pretty. It's really soft, very fine fiber. They throw it in a box in the barn. And one day when that challenge came out, he put that box on eBay. And a lady in Boston and a lady in Colorado started bidding against each other. And all of a sudden, this four-pound box of nasty, dirty buffalo hair was over like 500 bucks. And you're kind of like, okay, what am I missing here? And that's, that's really what started the deep dive into to looking at this fiber. Um, if you think about the environment that the animals live in, their native rangelands can hit temperatures anywhere from negative 60, negative 80, up near Delta Junction, Alaska, Coke, and places like that, to up to 120 down past Mexico City. So they're really well adapted to a lot of varied climates. Mother Nature does a good job of taking care of its own. This fiber is really well adapted to keeping a large mammal comfortable in a wide range of temperatures. So now that we understand that, that this fiber is extremely efficient, they don't have much of it on their body. If you stripped all the down off of a bison hide, you're going to get less than a pound. And wow. then we wash it and scour it. And you, you don't get very much, but it really works well. So it doesn't take a lot to keep a 120-pound, 140-pound guy warm compared to 2,000 The way we, we started originally picking it up off fence and fences and blackberry bushes, we put, uh, started putting street sweeper brushes, the big plastic bristle brushes out on fences, on ranches and letting them comb themselves off and collect it that way. And then realizing that these are meat animals and these are going to processing. And instead of burning the hair off or using chemicals to, to wash it down the drain, that if we can shear these hides, add some value back into it, then we can collect a lot more. So again, it's, it's really goes back to that whole belief of using every part of the animal. And every part does have value. So that's, 
sorting how we got started. The next step from, from actually collecting it is processing. Processing it a couple of stages. First, it has to be scoured or washed. Bison don't have any lanolin or they don't have sebaceous glands, so they don't have any body oil on their fiber like sheep do. So, but it's a very crimpy, fine, dense fiber. That's why it's so insulated. But because it's very fine, crimpy, and dense, it also traps dirt. So it's got to be washed really well. You don't really want a sock that smells like a buffalo. So <laughs> we, we scour it um, through a, a hot water, you know, natural soap process that actually gets all that dirt out of it and, and opens the fiber up. And then we have to sort, sort and separate the guard hair, which is, of course, crunchy stuff, which is like if you look at bison hide. That's the majority of what you actually see. The down fiber is very short, very fine, and, and down close to the skin. So there's mechanical, there's machines that have a mechanical separation method, somewhat like they do with cashmere, that separates those fine soft fibers from the, the coarse fiber. We separate this in two different categories, and then we have to spin it into yarn. And spinning is a little trickier. It's a shorter staple fiber than, than most sheep's wool. So it takes a little bit more calibration and experience to turn it into a, a yarn. We do blend it with some other things because they bring different properties and it helps adjust the, the value. And then it can be knitted into things. And we're committed very much to, to working here only in the United States. This is not only our national mammal, it really represents our country. And in addition to trying to improve the land, we're trying to improve our production capacities. What's happened over the last 30, 50 years is we've lost a lot of experience in textiles, mills closing, equipment getting shipped over to China, and losing a lot of the knowledge that we've had over the years on how to actually make stuff. So that's been a whole separate journey. I just got back from, I was, uh, this weekend, I was up in a mill in Wisconsin spinning some of our yarn right now, doing an amazing job. But they're working with machinery that was built in 1916. Um, it's, and it still is does as good a job today as it ever has, and it makes some amazing yarn. So then, after after it's blended and spun into a yarn, it has to go and be knitted. The majority of our knitwear is done down in Austin, Texas. We've got a really neat Scottish guy down there who's wonderful, and he has these very technical automated knitting machines, and he can just make them do just about anything. If you look at most of our products, they are actually seamless. Uh, which is very unusual in textiles today. Most of, most of the stuff, they knit big sheets of things and cut it and sew it. You know, with a standard beanie, it's knitted like a big long tube and they chop it into lengths and then kind of sew a beanie out of it. Ours are all one piece crafted, so it just, hmm. it just makes them better and fit better. But yeah, it's a, it's a, there's a lot, a lot of pieces to the puzzle. And because I can't just order fiber like bison fiber like a can wool we have sort of a bottleneck in terms of how much we can ever make um, i said we've been in business as the buffalo wool company since 2011 and as buffalo gold since about 2005 and as of now we have sold out every single year that we have made them. wow it's limited i mean again we're not we're not working with hundreds of thousands of pounds of sheep Mm -hmm. But we have, we've brought more people into the fold. We have more friends and partners. And every year our production has increased. This last year, we went from, make, I think the prior year we did about 10,000 pounds. 
I think we're going to probably get about 25,000. That's so, awesome. That's a big job. Yeah. Well, but the demand I mean, that's is just, there, people realize it works. Because hmm. it makes me just think about, I mean, a huge resurgence right now, especially with uh, cattle, is just seeing so many tallow products. And so it's awesome to hear just the process of, of how you're making everything with bison and not just use utilizing bison for meat, obviously, but there's other things. Cause it's interesting. Their fat content is way lower than, than beef. So having tallow and, and, and uh, bone broth is much more difficult. So I'm curious, are there other creative ways to, to, to utilize a bison for different products for, for humans outside of the fur and the food? Um, well, I mean, you look at what a human or what any animal actually needs and it is sustenance and shelter and whether that shelter is clothing or housing or what have you, um, bison provide pretty much everything somebody needs. And again, it, it was literally the Walmart of the plains for the Native Americans for centuries. We are doing a lot of tallow products of our own. We have uh, everything from skincare products to bison tallow candles, which are pretty amazing. They, it, huh. When you just start realizing how well these things work compared to the synthetics that we've sort of engineered to replace them, um, it, it's pretty drastic. And again, this is all very basic stuff. It's not rocket science. It's not something that mankind hasn't done forever. So there's nothing we've do, done that's really revolutionary. We've just sort of modernized a little bit things that that have happened. But we're getting pretty close to, you know, I'm going to say that out of a commercial bison operation, 95% of the value, 95% of the animal is being utilized. There's very little actual ways. Some of the things that are a little unusual that you don't necessarily see when you go to our website is the coarse, the coarser crunchy fiber we use in a number of ways because as volume, it's significantly larger quantities than the down. We make a number of felt products. Our primary one is bison felt boot liners. I cannot tell you how popular those. They, they're crazy. They work really well. It's springy. It's bouncy. It insulates. It wicks moisture. We've started making a lot more bedding. Um, we make comforters and pillows stuffed with bison fiber. Again, it regulates temperature. It's not like memory foam that off gases. I mean, you think about sleeping on a memory foam pillow and you're breathing in polyvinyl chloride gases all night long. So coming back and, and using things that aren't toxic is huge. So the more we learn, the more we're able to find partners to help us with construction, design, development, and production, the more we're able to, to get this to market. The Buffalo Wool Company is essentially me and my wife. My sister-in-law who works for us and my granddaughter. So we contract out most of our production with other people who are doing things. Looking at the different aspects and new avenues, well, you kind of have to find somebody new who wants to play with something, and then all of a sudden you have a new product line. Got something working on mattress covers at the moment. We do a lot of soil amendment or garden underlayment. Um, Things that, again, putting those nutrients back into the soil and helping, you know, put up a natural weed block, things like that. We put up bird nesting material because 
when the bison were roaming the plains and this fluff was blowing everywhere, the native ground birds, the, the quail, the pheasant, the prairie chicken, had something they could use to line and insulate their nests. You get rid of these bison, and all of a sudden you lose the ground birds. You lose the ground birds, you lose the bison. And it's just, it's also interconnected. And it's, once you kind of take a step back and look at it, it's really obvious and makes sense. But there, I hope that answers the question. Went no, that was great. Because I have two points from that, I guess. So the first one in, in relation to, to the ground birds, do they get the nesting through wallowing when the bison do that? Or is that just as they're just walking and their hairs and fibers fall off? A little of both. I mean, again, this fiber, it grows out starting in the fall. And so by the time winter comes around, they are fully cleared up, as we call it. And then come January, February, when they don't need this fiber, it, it breaks off at the skin surface and starts to work, it way, work its way out. If you've ever seen them, like, in the parks or anywhere where they start looking dreadlocky and shaggy, it's this fiber coming out. So some of that comes out when they're wallowing, some of it comes out when they rub in the trees, and some of it just falls out later because it does. So it's just part of a natural cycle, and there's not one specific thing that, that mitigates it or instigates it. Well, that makes sense. And then the second thing I had with that was I wholeheartedly agree with your comments about uh, the memory foam pillows and whatnot, because when starting this apparel brand, that really opened up my eyes to just the natural fibers versus all the synthetic materials and how toxic all that is, especially inhaling all of that. And so it's that's why it's awesome talking to you about this process of the Buffalo Wool Company, because we need more and more natural fibers coming back into our apparel. I mean, for example, just with the organic con production, only 0.2% of the, the world's production was here this past year. Um, and so, yeah, that's just really great that you're doing all this stuff because it is. I don't and, think and, a lot of know, people are aware. It is. And I've got um, one friend who's very much a, a naturalist, and he's been, been pushing me to come up with a 100% natural sock. And it could be done. I mean, we've done it in the past. Mankind has, you know, we didn't have nylon you know, 200 years ago. But because we have some of these modern innovations, and some of them are actually useful, technology has done things to improve our lives. But there's got to be a balance. And so I, I will get people that want a 100% natural sock, and I'm kind of like, it's not a good idea necessarily. We have ways to make it better. There are, you know, elastic and spandex and nylon can be wonderful for reinforcement tools. And then using the natural fiber where it touches your skin. It is amazing how many people just pick up a sock and look at the back of the back and say, well, this is only 70% natural fiber. And then you try and explain, well, yeah, we do use these technical fibers for, you know, under the ball of the foot, up the back of the heel and things to, to make sure that this sock that you purchased will last a long time. But just going off straight percentages also is, is really misleading because the synthetic fibers are significantly heavier for for every seven yards of bison yarn i get about one yard of of nylon so you know that that in terms of volume is is hugely different even though they're the sock by, by volume might be 90 percent natural fiber and uh, sorry it's just another another one of those rattles. i do think that that some of the synthetics have their value i typically wear a shell shirt every day but I wear a 100% wool shirt underneath it next to my skin. 
Nylon's great at repelling water and better for abrasion. You know, this pr protects the natural fiber. But I do think that there is a balance in finding things that work for you and things that aren't necessarily toxic to your skin that you're not going to be absorbing, you know, versus wearing a, you know, a polyether undershirt or something like that. Or there's, there's balances in all this. I, I'm not going to go out and live in a cave. I'd like to, but probably not going to do it. <laughs> I mean, that's a great point. I guess can, with you were saying how you the placement of the nylon, because I definitely look at the percentages too. And this is a great point that makes me kind of rethink a little bit about that. Uh, I guess, can you go into the details of what you're saying, the, where you place the nylon? Isn't that not? Yeah, and I've, got, I've got a good, I've got a couple of good explanations of that on our website and things. But when we make this, when we're designing a sock, okay, because, and I use socks because it's the majority of, of our volume, um, we make what we call a base yarn. And I make several different base yarns. One is a, a bison and merino wool, one's a bison and merino and bamboo, one's a bison and silk, and one is pretty much pure bison. Um, so the body of the sock is really designed from that. And then we use a process called overplating. Where basically stitches are knitted on the outside of the sock to add that reinforcement. And I mean, you can look at any of our socks. I try to make it very clear. I don't try and hide wearing the nylon is. These are contrasting colors, so you can tell it's pretty common in the sock industry. You can really tell where the reinforcement is. But then, then you take the sock and turn it inside out, and you'll see that you're not going to see any of it there. You know, there might be a little bit of stitching show through, but truly very very low percentage will ever touch your skin. That's good to know. Um, that, that's, that's really good to know. Because, again, I'm... Yeah, I'm it's, it's one of my pet peeves as a sock designer. People come in, yeah. and first off, you know, they, they flip it over. And I'm like, well, yes, I agree with you that you don't really need, you know, nylon, you know, up and down your pulse points. But, you know, I, we do this for a reason. Again, there's a balance between being a realist being a naturalist and being, a, you know, an absolutist, I don't think that being an absolutist is, is possible. I have a, a very interesting customer who's posed a challenge for us to make that 100% sock. And I want to because he, he will not accept anything else, but I also have to deliver a product that is going to work, last, and be of the value. People work too hard for the money to spend something on, you know, anything that doesn't work and deliver. Oh, I agree with that. I guess my last my last question I have with this talk I guess just based off the discussion and with the awesome trends of where bison ranching is headed towards with the awesome goal of 1 million bison by you said 2025 or 20 yeah. It's it's been pushed back a little bit again. We've you know we've we've had a couple of setbacks the last few years in terms of you know restaurants closing, which were a larger volume of meat. You know, in the, obviously we've we've had some challenges the last few years, um, but we're not losing sight of of reaching that goal. When we get there, nature's going to dictate that. Hmm. I guess how could we for the younger generations and younger audience with just the advancing of technology and social media and TikTok and, and all of this, 
I know you've mentioned the the mentorship, but are there other ways that you could foresee uh, just trying to get them interested in this whole world of bison? And because for me, for example, I I uh, I had four. Go ahead. All right. This is something that you know came up with my daughter the other day over coffee, and I've had a few conversations with some important people about it, and. It hasn't really been made public yet, but there's no reason to, to hide. Here's my next plan. Uh, it's just that I'd like to see a McBison burger. I'd like to see the, the world's largest restaurant chain put bison on the menu. It's going to have to be limited in scale and scope for now, regional, seasonal, what have you. But the more we can reduce the barrier to entry. Right now, I'll be honest, I don't know where you live. But do you think you could go within five minutes find a bison burger? Well, I'm in Austin. But, yeah. No, most people can't. But yeah, I, yeah, yeah. You can. yeah, most people. But most people in general can't. So the easier you make it for somebody to actually try something and see for themselves what the value benefit is, then all of a sudden you, you've gained exposure, you've increased awareness, information, and knowledge. So... I'm, this is my new my new uh, <laughs> windmill that we're going to go tilt at. I'm going to try and pitch McDonald's to put a buffalo burger on the menu. Oh, heck yeah. I mean, that's a very good point because what I was going to mention too, I was up at Whole Foods in Austin and they had a mini freezer of force of nature meats and I saw bison. And I was like, huh, I don't know if I've ever had bison or when the last time I was. I bought it and then I ate it. It was great. And I did start doing research online and just went down the rabbit hole of bison to where I went to the National Bison Conference. And now I'm completely obsessed with them, too. So I wholeheartedly agree that's with awesome. that. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that's, I'm going to give you a challenge. Have you been down to Rome Ranch yet? No, I signed up for their bison harvest in January. Okay. Remember, we just had, we just had one bison harvest at, at Riffle Ranch in, in West Virginia. Taylor and Katie Collins, who are Rome Ranch, Force of Nature Meats, they're the ones who started mm-hmm. Epic Provisions and the Bison mm-hmm. Meat Barn. Absolutely phenomenal folks, much better spoken than I am. Um, their story and their journey is fascinating. And what they've done with their piece of land, when, when they sold off Epic Provisions, they had some money. They took it and put it where their mouth is and bought Rome Ranch down just outside Fredericksburg, Texas. It's phenomenal. It was a, it was a beat up, worn out dust bowl. They put out chicken trackers. They put bison on the land, and it has flourished. We just had a uh, conference down there in June. It was great. Uh, Joel Salatin came down, and it, oh, it was it was spectacular. We had they did a bison butcher butchery demonstration out in the field. Um, Wonderful folks. So I, I'm excited for you and, and the, the roast out there, and we'll probably be down there. I hope you're coming to the conference again in January. It's always an awesome time. Yeah, I saw that they the tickets aren't for sale yet, but I've had that on my radar too. I'm for sure going to be there. I guess with that being said, do you have any last comments or anything that you'd like to talk about that hasn't been discussed? Absolutely. Um, I would really like for people to check out Native, Prodigies of an Icon. It's a movie we've been making for the last two years, and it's uh, Charlie and Shauna Rankin are, are the f- actual filmmakers. They're out in North Carolina. 
it started with a discussion Charlie and I had. We saw him. He has a YouTube channel that's phenomenal. And we started talking about bison and the fact that there's never been a real documentary done from a producer's standpoint. So he's incredibly detail-oriented. The guy does his homework. And then he doesn't mind getting his hands dirty and getting on the ground. So as of now, he's done 70 travel vlogs. He's interviewed at 70 ranches. And I'm not sure exactly how many are out yet, but I do know that between now and the end of the year, there are 30 more of their half-hour, hour-long travel vlogs of these ranch interviews. But go watch the, the, tra the initial trailer. He's just released a new trailer last week. There's, I think he said something like 6,000 hours of footage done of bison all across the United States, all across Canada, um, from every park preserve ranch he can meet with, talk to. It is the most comprehensive look at bison ever. Awesome. Oh. And can you repeat that again to where the listeners could go? Um, the trailer is on, on YouTube and Rumble. The name of the movie is called Native Prodigies of an Icon. The channel is Yanasa TV, Y-A-N-A-S-A TV. Uh, go watch them. It's so much better than listening to me talk about them. A, the footage is spectacular, but it, it's a lot of people. And a lot of people who have been instrumental in this greatest comeback ever. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing. And you can find... Ron on Twitter at Buffalo Guy Ron and also his website, The Buffalo Wool Co. Thank you again, Ron, for joining me. My pleasure, Ryan. Thank you, brother. And take care. And I'll see you in January.